Okay, we're beginning a new series this morning on Malachi. Uh, I kind of figured, hey, we're doing an Old Testament prophet. I might as well look like an Old Testament prophet. Right? So, but the, the idea for the study wasn't actually my idea. It was actually Al Roberts' idea. Last spring, after a board meeting, Al came to me and said, Hey, Steve, you know what I think your next series should be after we get done with James? And I said, No, what, Al? And he said, I think your next series should be on the book of Malachi. I said, Malachi, really? Why? And he said, because that's the last word from God for Israel before the lights went out. And he said, I kind of think we're, that's where we are as a country. And he said, I think it'd be really powerful. And that really resonated with me and struck a chord, and so here we are. right? We're going to go through the book of Malachi. And uh, as you know, Al and Paula moved there in Colorado. So Al... I know you'll be listening to this once we download it for the website. So thanks for the idea and blessings to you and Paula as you anchor in Colorado with your family. Okay? So let's pray this morning. We'll get started. One of the reasons we need to pray this morning, have you heard about the earthquake and tsunami in Indonesia? Uh, It's caught a lot of people by surprise. It's really not in the news. A number of people hadn't even heard of it. But again, a disastrous earthquake somewhere in the neighborhood of 7.1 to 7.4 with an ensuing tsunami. There's footage of it. It's terrifying if you watch what's going on. Already some 830 dead, and they figure there's going to be many, many more because the thing went up along the coastline, and a number of cities were actually closer to the epicenter than the one they have the footage from. And so as we are in safety this morning, there's a number of people uh, this morning who are in terror and uh, you know, families are destroyed and that kind of stuff. And I just thought it'd be really appropriate to pray. So, would you join me? Would we do that, Father? Our heart goes out to people who, this morning, uh, actually the day before, were celebrating on a beach and there's a big thing, and then the earthquake hit, and those people are no longer alive. Many got swept away in the power of the water. And, um, they're trying to dig people out from the rubble, and it's hot and uh, terrible film and uh, dirt and grit. And and we sit here this morning and we just stand in the gap for them and would ask that your spirit would minister to that group of people. We don't know how many believers are there. We don't know where they are. Um, We don't know how affected they were. We would certainly pray for them, but we would also pray uh, that's mostly as an Islamic nation. We would ask that you would be at work there to reach out to people who desperately are crushed right now at this moment and need your spirit, need your life. Uh, We can't do it, but you can through your spirit, and we'd ask for that favor. As we sit here, we know we're not immune to that. We're not immune to earthquakes. We're not immune to tsunamis. Things can happen here just as bad, and it pays for us to really pay attention to you. Uh, It's not just life goes on as it always goes on. And Lord, uh, every Sunday is a miracle. Every Sunday is a day that you can break out and, and talk to people. And we ask this morning that you'd begin to use Malachi for us in a really significant way. It was the last book, and therefore it has real significance. And we ask for the favor, be among us in your spirit, manifest your presence. Talk to couples, talk to individuals. It's your room, and we give that to you a great hope. Pray this in your son's name. Amen. Okay. Well, before we get going on the text, let's do some background so we just kind of understand the timeline and the the background for Malachi. Uh, I had Margaret put this together. Uh, 
So getting a handle on the history, just kind of where things were and, and how it happened. So Babylon becomes a world power. Nebuchadnezzar actually invades Jerusalem three different times. In the first time, uh, there's some significant figures that we would relate to. Jeremiah is the prophet in Jerusalem at that time, uh, trying to turn the people back to the Lord. And you can read about the book of Jeremiah and, and you can catch up with that story in that book. Also, Ezekiel is taken away as a captive. So he's one of the group that's hauled off in that first batch. Uh, they think it was about 150,000 people that got hauled off and spread around the empire. So Ezekiel's one of those. And he wrote the book of Ezekiel. So you can read Ezekiel and get caught up on, on how that looked for him. And then Daniel was also taken. And uh, he was placed in the king's training for service within the government. And so you can read the book of Daniel and follow that. But those three all happen almost simultaneously. They're not exactly, but, but really close. In 586, Nebuchadnezzar came back for the third time and just flattened the whole thing. Just took it out. Everybody was either killed, exiled, or they fled to Egypt uh, to escape. Among that was a group that took Jeremiah against his will and hauled him to Egypt. And uh, a lot of bad things happened with that. In 540 B.C., Cyrus uh, made a decree in 538. In 540 B.C., uh, the Jews returned to the promised land. They come back from Babylon. And uh, under the prophetic ministries of Haggai and Zechariah in 520 B.C., uh, the temple is rebuilt by Zerubbabel. So you have Zerubbabel and Joshua the high priest, and the temple's actually uh, rebuilt. Uh, and they were saying, how is it that you live in paneled houses when my house sits in ruins? And you can read that in Haggai and Zechariah. Are you getting the theme here? There's all these books trying to give you the connection. In, in 458, Ezra returns with another group of Ezra's. Ezra's an a incredibly significant uh, person within the Old Testament and also uh, in the kingdom of God. Ezra is one of the people that uh, they give him credit for pulling together the Old Testament as we understand it today. So very significant figure. He returns with another group of exiles. He begins a group, a set of reforms among the people. And you can read this in the book of Ezra. All right. So Ezra's right there in the Old Testament. You can read that. And then in 444, B.C., Nehemiah, who is the cupbearer for the king, Asherus, and he's the cupbearer for the king. He is given permission by the king to come back to Jerusalem, and he comes back with the intent to rebuild the walls. So Jerusalem at this point is pretty vulnerable. They have temple services going, but none of the surrounding countries really like it. They're mad. They really want to wipe them out. They're, they have no wall to protect them. When Nehemiah comes back, they rebuild the wall around the city, in 52 days. Pretty miraculous uh, set of circumstances. And um, so you can read the book of Nehemiah and read that story as well. Then uh, after this comes uh, Malachi around 420. So 420 years before Jesus, this is when this occurs. And there's two kind of major different theories about the timing of Malachi. Theory number one is that Malachi served in the interim gap of Nehemiah's ministry uh, when he went back to Persia. So what that means is Nehemiah came to Israel, 
rebuilt the wall, then went back to Persia, and there was a gap while he was gone, and some think that that's when Malachi is written, and then Nehemiah comes back, and then you get the end of the book of Malachi. And others say, no, Nehemiah did his whole thing, and then Malachi was at the end and after it. Uh, Be that as it may, Malachi is important. And the reason Malachi is important is because he's the last prophetic word to Israel for 400 years. So if you look at the timeline up on the screen and you can see uh, you go from Malachi and there's not another word until the guy we know as John the Baptist who's ushering in what? The ministry of Jesus. Right? And so uh, it's a really significant book. It gives us, uh, just to give you an idea how long that is, uh, that's longer than we've been a country. 400 years. So like... You know, in America, if something's 150 years old, that's, a, that's old, right? That's a long time. We just came back from Italy where stuff's 3,000 years old, right? Well, this is uh, even older than that. So it's taken us back quite a ways. The situation, let's look at the situation here. Uh, if you're looking at the setting, so as we mentioned, the, the uh, temple walls, the temple and the walls had been rebuilt. So uh, Jerusalem is reconstituted as a city and Israel's reconstituted as a state. Uh, there's a gap between the walls being rebuilt in uh, Malachi's ministry of roughly 25 years, give or take a little bit. And in that, that gap, uh, a slide begins. Uh, what had happened is before that they're vulnerable, but now they're no longer vulnerable. They're protected. Business can go on as usual. They don't live on the edge of the needle And so they start to relax. And so uh, discipline gets to be lax. Attention to the law slips. We'll pick this up in Malachi, particularly with the priests. But most important, appreciation for what God has done wanes. Okay? They no longer thought it was big stuff. They no longer thought, why should that occupy my attention? And so as he always has and always does, God raises up a prophet. And so the question before we get started on the book is, so then who is the prophet Malachi? And the truth is, we really don't know, right? You can look and study, but uh, when it comes to Malachi, the beginning of the book says this, a prophecy, the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. Now, Malachi simply means, the name means my messenger. So some people have said, okay, this is an author writing in a pseudonym, Right, And he's using Malachi, my messenger, but it was somebody else who wrote it. And some of the theories are that some traditions have Ezra as the author. Uh, Some other traditions have Mordecai as the author. Remember, Mordecai was the uncle to Esther, right? And the whole story of Esther. So you can go to the book of Esther and read that story and get caught up with that. But all the other Old Testament books start out with the author being named. And so most scholars feel that Malachi should be no exception to that, despite the fact that we don't know a lot about the person or the background. When we get into the book, what we're going to find is that Malachi uses a rhetorical device. It's it's a question and answer format that becomes very familiar to us when we read the New Testament because you find the Pharisees and Jesus engaged in that. Right? The Pharisees say, we want to ask you a question. Jesus said, well, I'll ask you a question because of my question. And if you answer my question, then I'll answer your question. Right? That format is actually first found in the book of Malachi. The opening of it says, 
the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. So God's about to have a dialogue with his people. Kind of a father-son chat, if you will. I, I want to sit down and have a family meal, a family meeting. Right? We, we need to talk. Uh, this book isn't about what God's going to do with all the other nations, although a, a couple of the other nations are, are mentioned. We'll show you one this morning. But this is God's direct dialogue with Israel. Uh, and it takes on the flavor of kind of, as I said, a family discussion. The book begins with a statement that sets the table for all the illustrations that are going to be used in the book. And so the opening should be seen as the key. This is the, the, the heart of the issue that God is going to go after. And the rest of the book then should be symptoms, should be seen as symptoms of that heart issue. And so the question is, well, what then is that heart issue? Well, it starts with an emphatic statement, and the statement is this. Oops, I've got to get going here. I, sorry, my apologies. I have loved you, says the Lord. All through Scripture, we are reminded about God's love for us. His, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His love is from everlasting to everlasting. His is an enduring love. His is a faithful love. His is a gracious love. We sang about His love in all three songs this morning, right? Your praise will ever be on my lips. Why? Because of your love for me. And we went through and um, all three songs kind of echoed this theme this morning. And God says to them, I have loved you. If the Lord came and said this to you this morning, how would you respond? Probably in a variety of different ways, right? Because we're different personalities with different stories and different backgrounds. But shouldn't it be really in the best of all possible senses, I love you too? Right? Isn't that normal? If somebody comes to you and says, I love you. I say to Pam, I love you. Isn't it normal for her to say, I love you too? Hopefully, right? And, and isn't that true even with parents? I, you know, when you go to kids, I love you. And they, oh, I love you too, right? It, that's the normal response. Author and Christian psychiatrist Larry Crabb writes this. He says, the core battle in everyone's life is to relate well to God. Stop and think about that for a second. If we really we're able to relate well to God. Think about how many problems that would get rid of just among us. Right? It starts because we're messed up with him and then we, we spread the mess to each other. He says the core battle is to relate well to God, to worship him, to enjoy him, to experience his presence, to hear his voice, to trust him in everything, to always call him good, to obey every command, even the hard ones, and to hope in him even when he seems to disappear. As a father, I would, and, and I still do, tell my children that I love them. I go around and say, hey, do you know your dad loves you? Yeah, 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 yeah. No, do you know your dad loves you? Yeah, 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 yeah. Hey, I love you. Yeah, 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 right? And, and the other ones are doing that. If it's Abby, I love you, love you more, love you better, love you best, love you, right? It goes on for a half hour with Abby. <laughs> By the way, she says hi from the jungle. She's doing well. But some of the most precious words I've ever heard back are, love you too, Daddy. Right? Remember in the little, love you too, Daddy. That look in their eyes and you were Dad and love you, Daddy. If you walk into my office and look on my whiteboard uh, up in the upper left-hand corner, my oldest daughter, Kayla, 
has inscribed just that. I love you, Daddy. And she's been doing that ever since she was a little girl in offices here and when we were over at 7-Eleven, way back when we were in the offices in Mill Creek, she'd come in and scrawl on my board, I love you, Dad. I think she started that when she was like four or five years old. And um, once, accidentally, it got erased while we were uh, doing some calendar planning. You know, I was swiping the marker. <laughs> ah! Right? And I, I called her up and I, I had to have her come back in and, uh, and put it back up there in her own handwriting. Right? It wasn't, it wasn't going to be any good if I put it in my handwriting. Right? That's lame. And so she came back in and put it back up there. And then once she erased it uh, for something new and uh, more clever. And I had to come to her and I had to convince her that the innovation was greatly appreciated. But what I really needed her to do and what I really desired was to have her put the old saying back up there again. You know, I, because I just couldn't help it. I just couldn't help it. I, I, had, I had and have grown accustomed to looking at that every day. I love you, Daddy. Right? And I, I, the kaleidoscope of all that means had become very precious to me. Much more than just the words, right? It does something too and for my heart. And uh, it makes me think of her. Very simple, yet very profound. I love you, Daddy. And when she went to college, it reminded me to pray for her. I love you, Daddy. You know, there are no more precious words as a father that a father could hear than for him to hear his children say back to him, I love you, Daddy. It speaks of love. It speaks of gratefulness. It it breathes honor. It it exudes joy and, and preciousness. I love you, Daddy. Does it strike us as so strange that that would be true of God as well? That when God talks to his children and he tells them, I love you, what does he expect to hear back? I love you too, Daddy. Right? Does that ever get too old? Do we ever get too sophisticated? Do we ever get too uppity and too intelligent that we can't tell our Father in heaven, I love you too, Dad? But sadly... That's not the response that God gets when he reaches out to his children in love. I have loved you. And Malachi uses a word picture that shows both in its expression and in, in deeper in the roots how inappropriate their heart attitude towards God had become. He comes to them and says, I've loved you. And their response? How have you loved us? Mom, Dad, you ever gotten that back? Ouch! Talk about a mood killer. I just messed up that whole sermon. You were doing good till that point, Steve. You know, expecting love and instead you get a kick in the teeth? Or worse, indifference? Or even worse than that, ungratefulness. Right? As parents, I found as parents, we can absorb a lot. We flex and roll, we bounce. But one of the things that really clips us hard is when we get a spirit of ungratefulness back. Right? When... It just kind of gets thrown back in our face. And we, we go, wait a minute. And from the parent's side, that's really irritating. It's really agitating. And the Expositor's Bible Commentary points out it had been about 50 years since they had returned to the Promised Land. And the return, although not accompanied by the miracles of the Exodus, had, was nevertheless viewed exultantly as the work of God. That group, that generation that came back said, man, look at what the Lord has done for us. 
He's really loved us. But a lot of time had slipped by and it was easy to forget. You ever forget how good God's been to you? I know I have. The first generation was passing and the new generation wasn't impressed by what had gone in the past. Yeah, whatever. Okay. Yeah, we've heard those stories before. Yeah, nice stories. What does that have to do with it right now? We, we got stuff we got to deal with. And the expositor's commentary says, we don't know for certain whether the people actually put into specific words their doubt of God's love for them, but spoken or unspoken, the popular attitude was that God had forsaken them and maybe even on a deeper level failed them. I love you. Really? Is this the best you can do? I, I, I love you. Really? This is it? Really? I love you. Whatever. And God always comes back. He's a good dad. Comes back with, remember? Don't you remember? Remember who you are. Remember our history. Remember the conversation. Remember what I've done for you. In essence, what he's saying is, let's go back and take a trip down memory lane. Let me remind you. I, I, you're, you're young, you haven't been wrong for this whole gig. Let me remind you of the whole story. Do you remember how it all began? Do you remember how the relationship began? And so he takes them back to the beginning of the relationship. And he says this, Was not Esau Jacob's brother? Declares the Lord, Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. And I have turned his hill country into a wasteland and left his inheritance to the desert jackals. That's a flattering description, right? But if you go on to verse 4 and 5, it talks about Esau's stubborn insistence that it will overcome or conquer Israel. And then this kicks us into God's sovereignty and election, that whole intense debate and discussion. Romans 8, 9, and 10. I've loved, I've hated Esau, I've loved Jacob, right? That whole thing. But for this morning, I'd like to take a little different tack. You know, God's comeback is, is kind of harsh here. In essence, he's saying, are you forgetting that I chose you? I didn't, chose, I didn't choose Esau. I chose you. Are you forgetting that? Are you forgetting I found you? Are you forgetting that I claimed you? Are you forgetting how we'd say it? Are you forgetting you were adopted by me? Right? Adoption is a, a fascinating process. He says, if I've loved you and I hated Esau, then why do you hate me? You know, when it comes to adoption, I've seen two different and two very amazing responses to adoption. The, the first reaction is one of contempt. You're not my parent. I never wanted to be part of this family. You can't tell me what to do. Right? You ever seen that before in adopted families? I've seen it. It's crushing. Uh, and I've seen the second one is the exact opposite of that. The second one is one of gratefulness. Man, I love my parents. You know, other parents have to love their kids. My parents chose to love me. They, they wanted to. They intentionally adopted me. Can you believe that? Um, our own Rob Henry falls into this category. Rob is, if you're new, Rob's the one who gave the announcements this morning. Rob's adopted. Matter of fact, his mom, George and Carol, our mom and dad are sitting right here in the, in the room. Carol, sorry, I didn't ask you for permission on this. Too bad, so sad. Um, <laughs> but he's immensely grateful to them. And he loves them deeply. And, and he will tell you uh, that 
he is so thankful to God that they are his parents. And he'll tell you, those two right there are my parents. Okay? It's just an incredible response. The issue of gratefulness is a huge one. If you go to Romans 1, it says this, and this verse is in the context of a much bigger setting, but for this morning's purposes, although they knew God, it says they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Not talking about people who don't know God. It's talking about people who do know God. And he's saying in this context that they didn't give him the honor he deserved. And secondly, just as important, they weren't grateful. They weren't grateful. Lack of honor and a lack of gratefulness. What does any father, for that matter, any parent want from their children? Isn't it honor and gratefulness? Right? We'd say love, but honor and gratefulness, right? Thank you for what you do for me. Thanks, Mom and Dad. Right? And, and, and gratefulness. Oh, man, you guys went out of your way to do that? Wow! Thank you. What gets missed in, in this whole discussion then, as we're looking at this, is what we forget about is how deeply wounded God's heart was. We don't tend to think of God as a person, at least emotionally. We tend to think of him as altogether perfect, stiff, solid, non-moving, inflexible, impenetrable, nothing bothers him, Uh, he's above all, and our little things don't affect him at all. But that's not the heart of a father. When God introduces himself to us in Scripture, how does he say it? Our Father, who art in heaven. Fathers have a heart for their children. And because... They have a heart for their children. They can be affected by their children. Okay? I always tell parents in parenting classes that you have to understand in parenting there's a universal rule that the one who loves the most has the least power. Okay? The one who loves the most has the least power. Who loves the most, the parent or the children? The parents. Right? The parents know the whole story. The parents know the pain. The parents know the process. The parents know the cost. Parents have the deeper love, and as a result of that, they have the least power. Why? Because the kids can go, I don't have to play by your rules. You want me, want me want to watch me hijack this whole thing? Watch. Because I don't have to, you have to love me, you're the parent. I don't have to love you. And that same thing we play back to God. Well, you, you're God, you have to love us. We don't have to. But we forget about the impact it has on the heart of God. It rattles him deeply. It wounds him profoundly. I have loved you. I protected you. I will still protect you from the threats of your enemies. And they're like, really? I'm not so sure you're capable. You know, Israel had no worse enemy than Adam. If you go back in the the biblical history and context, uh, Esau was the absolute worst threat to Israel. Uh, if you look at verses 4 and 5, Edom, Edom is Esau. That would be Jacob's brother. It, it says, Edom may say, though we have been crushed, we will rebuild the ruins. But this is what the Lord Almighty says, they may build, but I will demolish. They will be called the wicked land, a people always under the wrath of the Lord. You will see it with your own eyes and say, great is the Lord, even beyond the borders of Israel. 
See, Israel's kind of like us sometimes. They went, you know, we've heard these stories. Man, the, yeah, the, wow, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Egypt and the Red Sea and wow. Yeah, that, that probably was really true. But, you know, God, this has been a long time. There's been centuries and, and a couple thousand years and you're older than you were and you're probably starting to look like Steve now and you maybe don't have any power anymore and like, you know, you could do it back there but I'm really not sure you can do it here anymore and we're not even sure you're doing such a good job with us let alone those other countries and those have always been our enemies and we're not sure you can really pull this thing off. And God says, my name is going to be great in Israel, and it's going to be great beyond the borders of it, uh, Israel. There's no more hostile feud, as I mentioned, in the history of the world than the one between Esau and Jacob. Makes the Hatfields and McCoys look like a, a, a little skirmish. And that, that, that feud rages on today. You can still hear it. Presently in the news, if you listen to the news, uh, these same threats are being made in our modern world stage. We are going to wipe Israel off the face of the map. And God says, well, you may say that, but you're right, somebody's going to get wiped, but it ain't Israel. God is reminding Israel that if it wasn't for His great providence and watch care, they wouldn't even be a nation. God, in their view, could hardly take care of Jerusalem, let alone the rest of the nations around them. And, And this context should just remind us today, because we can look and go, you know... There's a lot more people around than when that was written and the nations are bigger and there wasn't even a United States of America when that was written and there was no Russia like we know it and you know there's China with all these and God, that's pretty intimidating. That's pretty big. Can, can, can you even track that, let alone do something about it? And we've got to remind ourselves that God is not intimidated by borders or nations or threats. He says the nations are as but a drop in the bucket. Go and read Isaiah 40 if you want to take that farther. But let's come back to the main key. God says this, I have loved you. I have loved you. He's saying that again today. So the question is going to be, how then is this book going to pertain to us? How is this going to connect with us now in our modern context? Scripture tells us, in its own commentary, that all these things have been given unto us or written for us uh, upon whom the end of the ages has come and they've been written as instructions for us so that we wouldn't make the same mistakes that the people the stories are written about made. We can learn from their mistakes. We can watch and learn from history and we cannot make the same errors that they made in their relationship with God that had such disastrous consequences. What's the overview this morning? Well, the overview is that if you look at history, Israel didn't respond well and the lights went out. Okay? For 400 years, there was no prophetic voice until John the Baptist began his ministry. They said, we don't really want you speaking to us. And so God said, all right, then I'll be quiet. And he stopped for 400 years. You know, we've said the same thing in our country. We don't want you in our schools. We don't want you in our government. We don't want you in our business. We don't want you in our our morals or ethics. We want you out. And God has said, all right, then I'll step out. And we're reaping the whirlwind because of it today. 
And there has to be a group of people somewhere that comes back and says, hey, we have made a terrible mistake. We have been terribly dishonoring. We have been terribly ungrateful. Would you let us repent and come back to you? And in the book are going to be things that are important from God's perspective. This book is from God's perspective, not the people's perspective. This is God saying, this is how it feels to me. This is what it looks like. This is what it tastes like. This is how it comes across. Whether you totally intend that or not, this is what it feels like. Now, hopefully we're obedient. Hopefully a number of us are walking with the Lord. Hopefully, you know, we've got some momentum because of that. But we can learn from those and say, what were they doing wrong that really irritated the heart of their Heavenly Father? And we can course correct from that. So we're going to walk through this book together and just see what that see what that is. And my hope is, let's not live in the silence. Let's let them speak. Right? Would you join me in prayer? Father, as we come this morning, uh, we come to you as Dad. You say to call you Abba, Father. That's Daddy. And sometimes we can get a little too highfalutin and sophisticated for that. But when we stop and soften, we realize that's very appropriate. We recognize we live in uh, very uh, dynamic times. There's stuff going on. Um, For those people in Indonesia, they thought they had years. And the truth is, when that happened, they had moments. And we don't know our timing. Only you know it. And we may be thinking all these things and what we would put together and where we're going to go. And and the truth is we may only have moments as well. And so we stop. We we freeze and we realize we're not in control. And the truth is we're very arrogant when we act like we have it in our hands and we we can make these things happen. The truth is it's in your hands. And Lord, the truth is you've been very, very good to us as a father. Could we apologize this morning for forgetting? Could we apologize this morning to you for not paying attention? Could we apologize to you this morning for selective listening? Could we apologize for just having a very ungrateful attitude? Would you help us cultivate a spirit of gratefulness? Uh, Lord, that's different in our culture. There's not, not, the rhetoric of our culture is amped up. Uh, it's toxic, it's hostile. And Lord, gratefulness stands out like a sore thumb. May we have that as an abundance and we ask for that gift in your name. Amen.